back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Wednesday, May 15th, 2013, and this is podcast number 314. My name is Ben Stone. Okay, now this is a little sound clip from Obama from a speech that he just gave uh, not long ago, a few days or a week ago, something like that. And I think it's important that we, uh, that we notice when events like this take place. What is happening here? is Obama is actually um, recognizing that we exist, that those of us in the liberty movement exist. Not just the Ron Paul-type liberty movement, not just the, you know, the Republicans that are a pain in the neck to the Democrats, not that, not the Tea Party, not that, but the actual idea that government, in Obama's words, is sinister. Now listen to his clip. And uh, and when as as you listen to this, realize that if we weren't making an impact with what we're doing, then these words would not have been spoken by the president of the United States. So listen very carefully to this, and then I've got some more comment and a, 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 another audio to play for you. We the people chose to do these things together because we know this country cannot accomplish great things if we pursue nothing greater than our own individual ambition. Unfortunately, you've grown up hearing voices that incessantly warn of government as nothing more than some separate, sinister entity that's at the root of all our problems. Some of these same voices also do their best to gum up the works. They'll warn that tyranny is always lurking just around the corner. You should reject these voices. Because what they suggest is that our brave and creative and unique experiment in self-rule is somehow just a sham with which we can't be trusted. We have never been a people who place all of our faith in government to solve our problems. We shouldn't want to. But we don't think the government is the source of all our problems either. Because we understand that this democracy is ours. And as citizens, we understand that it's not about what America can do for us. It's about what can be done by us together through the hard and frustrating but absolutely necessary work of self-government. And class of 2013, you have to be involved in that process. Okay, now when I first heard that, well, first when I first heard it, I chuckled and, uh, and I realized that indeed we are uh, making an impact. Otherwise, he wouldn't have wasted his time and he wouldn't show the kind of fear that he shows. There's fear in that little uh, in that little clip there if he wasn't afraid of us then uh then then this wouldn't have taken place he wouldn't have said these things and especially not the way that he said them okay now uh one of the uh, one of the folks over on the bad quaker forum uh, named Isaac um uh, put up a um 
a video that I haven't thought about in a long time. And when I saw this video, I thought, man, that's exactly what, uh, that's right in line with what Obama was talking about here. It's, it's an underlying fear within statists that the, that the facade is starting to crumble, that people are seeing beyond, you know, the, uh, the myth of the state. So at first I put an inappropriate response on the forum to Isaac and uh, as soon as I can uh, get done with this podcast, if I can remember it, I'm going to go over and thank Isaac for posting that and and uh, clarify my response on there. Because here's the thing of it, um, the, the, the clip, this is a YouTube um, video from a uh, TED, a TED um, speech that took place at Dartmouth and uh, by a guy named Charlie Whelan. And my response was to just say, well, Charlie Whelan's an idiot. He's stupid. And and partially the reason I uh, responded that way is because uh, three years ago when this video first started popping all over the Internet, I took the time and very carefully picked it apart and explained to a number of people what was wrong with it at the, at back then. And there was quite a bit of controversy and there was a lot of uh, feelings over this. And in a sense, I, I didn't want to relive all that stuff. I mean, I, I had already dealt with Charlie Whelan, and I really, you know, uh, on the internet that is, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to rehash it all, so I just was kind of rude and said, "Well, he's an idiot." But the more I got thinking about it, the more I thought that's not the response I should have, because uh, I'm, I'm dealing with a totally different audience now. The people on the Bad Quaker forum. Uh, were were probably not uh, aware of my response back in 2010. So I think it's important when somebody puts the kind of effort, uh, whether it's Obama or whether it's um, uh, Charlie Whelan, when they put that kind of effort into attacking our movement and attacking what it is that we're saying and the message that we're saying uh, among us in the liberty movement, I think it's important that we have a logical response to them and a clear uh, response. But I think it's also important, and this is something that's becoming uh, – I really think that I need to put more emphasis on both in my, with myself and with other people in the liberty movement. We need to not um, take this battle – you know, I've been saying here lately that government is not the problem. Government is not your enemy. Don't think of government as being the problem. Realize that it's far beyond that, that government is just those people. It's people that are deceived. It's people who are entirely addicted to uh, to the theft that goes on in government. And they've lived all their lives believing that this was good. And whether we're talking about the cop on the street or whether we're talking about the lady at the DMV or whether we're talking about somebody at the Social Security office or whether we're talking about somebody at the IRS or whether we're talking about, you know, military uh, individuals that are on the ground with a gun in their hand shooting people or whether we're talking about a guy who's flying a drone and never sees the destruction that he does, never sees the dead children that he lays in his path. It doesn't matter what level of government we're talking about, right up to those people that we tend to demonize like Obama or George W. Bush or you know some of the uh, people in Congress, even those people that we enjoy demonizing so much, really and truly um, – they really are victims 
of this horrible religion called the state. And so to just blindly attack them or to confront them and try to uh, force a response out of them is um, misguided, I believe. Now, there are, there are opportunities, there are times when we can do this and we can make it uh, uh, productive, thinking of some of the things that the guys at Cop Block do and some of the folks in the Free State Project have done, where, where the, the confronting of something that is so blatantly absurd um, brings a, a completely illogical over-response from these authority figures. And you get that on camera, and then you can see how ridiculous the idea of government is um, and how ridiculous it is that these people blindly follow orders like this. So, so I'm not saying that, that activism is not good or whatever like that. I'm saying that um, our approach needs to be a smart approach, and it needs not to be personal attacks against individuals in government, and it needs to not be um, focusing, trying to get government to, to do our bidding for us. Our focus needs to be on exposing the myth of the state, exposing the lie that that some people um, are somehow blessed with some kind of magic authority that they can make up laws and enforce them on everybody else. That myth, that religion, that's what we have to deal with. Okay, so now uh, we heard Obama's words there, and I'm going to play for you uh, this thing from Charlie Whelan, and I'm going to pick it apart as we go. The, the video itself is like uh, 19 minutes long, and I'm not going to uh, – well, I'm probably not going to play the whole thing, but, uh, but I do want to go sort of point by point and pick it apart – uh, where he just commits horrible fallacies, uh, the kind of thing that, you know, he's a, a college professor and supposedly in economics. And I don't know how you can get a degree in economics or teach economics being so economically ignorant as this man is. And I'm not saying ignorant in a negative way, like, yeah, I called him stupid. I called him uh, uh, other names as well. But that's not ignorant. Ignorant is, is just having no knowledge of something. And here he is teaching economics, and he's entirely ignorant of the basics of economics. And it's not just – this is not a, a, a you know an Austrian thing against the Keynesian thing against the Chicago economics. It's not that. It's just the basics of economics that this man is so ignorant that it's just sad. Um, so so okay I'm going to I'm going to get into his uh, video here and I'll uh what I primarily want to do is show you how he uh utilizes one fallacy after the next just uh uh he he never stops and really does anything to prove his point he just lays this all out because he believes it so thoroughly he doesn't actually you can tell from the video he believes this stuff. He doesn't think he needs to actually go through and and think it through to its root and analyze it and see if he's correct. He never does that. He doesn't have to because he's so filled with confidence in his faith that uh, that, that he doesn't question it for a moment. Okay, so here we go. So I'm going to talk to you about why you should love government. And it doesn't have to be this government that you love. It doesn't have to be the last government. I'm not even going to specify what level of government I'm talking about. But what I'm going to try and convince you of is that the notion of government, the idea that we make rules for ourselves, which we almost by definition are not going to agree on or we wouldn't need the rules, we then enforce and impose punishment on folks for people who do not adhere to them, is the most important thing that we can do as a society. 
And to put a little finer point on it, so since this is essentially Econ 28 in 18 minutes, I'm going to give you a specific case. Ten years ago, it was December of 2000, I remember the time exactly because the Bush-Gore election was still being contested. There was a guy at a public policy conference. The technology boom, the dot-com boom had bust, but not completely. The hubris was still lingering. And there was a guy at the conference who stood up and he said, technology has made government irrelevant. What I'm going to do for the next 17 and a half minutes is offer a rejoinder to that statement because I've since described it as the stupidest thing I've ever heard a smart person say. The first reason that we need government is if you, best illustrated, if you imagine my life since 2000, since that conference, if we didn't have any government. And I, of course, would be an extremely rich man because I would be the founder of Chuck Flicks, which is a movie where you get DVDs, you have a little queue, you mail them in, they mail them back. And you might say, well, that seems awfully familiar to Netflix. And of course it is, because I will have taken all of their software, and I will use that. And this, I won't be using all of my time on this, because I'll also be operating Chuck Google and Chuckersoft and a series of other high-tech ventures, all of which I've stolen from different high-tech firms, except it's not really stealing, because there is no intellectual property protection in the absence of government. Wow. Now, um, we have two different directions that we can take this uh, at this point. First off, um, it, it, he very first starts out here with the fallacy called appeal to, pro, to probability. He, uh, it, it's taking something for granted because it might be the case. Okay, so for instance, he says uh, that without government, we wouldn't have any IP protections. Well, I'd almost agree with that 100%, except we don't have any evidence of that. That is a, a leap of faith. It, it, it's, it's hoping that something is so because you think it might be so and then announcing it as a fact. Now, uh, I'm not a supporter of, I, of IP. I think intellectual property is an imaginary property. And I think that in a perfect libertarian paradise, in a perfect, uh, like Michael and Nima say over there at the Freedom Fiends in Libpair, or in uh, you know any kind of an anarchy, uh, anarcho-capitalist type society, there wouldn't be IP as we know it today. But there's a variety of ways that you can protect um, uh, uh, proprietary information without the government and without IP law. And I, you know, I don't have time to go into all that today. People like Stefan Kinsella has, uh, you know, thoroughly gone through this stuff. So f the fact that um, Whelan would just throw that out as a fact here, here's a fact, boom. Um, it, it's uh, it's completely illogical to do that. He's making an assumption based on. Uh, something that he's taking for granted. And it's something that he had, obviously, by the the way he presents it, he's never actually thought it through, and he's never investigated the other side of the argument on this thing. So he's assuming, first off, he's assuming that IP law is valid, which is a leap in its own. Then he's assuming that um, in the, by, by saying that he would steal Netflix and steal Google and, and all these kind of things, he's assuming by saying that he would be a rich man by controlling all these things, he's assuming that nobody else would also take that technology and, and utilize it. He's assuming there would be no competition whatsoever. He's assuming that uh, the technology for Netflix would come out. He'd magically be able to figure it all out right down to the detail, copy their, uh, their entire business model, and outcompete them 
in the marketplace, uh, well, nobody else would have ever thought of this and competed as well. Now, this is this is uh, not only um, well. Well, part of what he's doing here is begging the question. He's setting up a scenario so that he gets the answer that he wants. It's like saying, you know, uh, if you if you ask a guy, um, do you still beat your wife? Well, that that's begging the question. Uh, I, I don't beat my wife. I've never beat my wife. So how do I answer this question? Yes or no, sir? Do you still beat your wife? Well, you can't answer yes or no because it's you've already uh, you're begging the question. You've already set up the 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 scenario to try to get the answer that you want. Well, that's what he's done here. And so right off the bat, he's he's completely violated the basic premise of of using logic in an argument. And again, I'm going to assume it's because he is so brainwashed by this whole system that he's never actually sat down and thought the process out of what it is he believes, and he has certainly never investigated the other side of the argument, that there might be, and this is an arrogance that you see a lot of times in the higher educated people, the arrogance that there might be somebody out there with an idea that you haven't thought of. All right, let's get back to him here and see what he has to say. So if this were a criminal prosecution of this guy who stood up, I would probably rest my case now. Because the irony is that in the absence of government, there is no technology to make it irrelevant. Now, this is a critical point that he just made. Without government, there's no technology. And he, he, reiterate, he reiterates that uh, a little bit later. But just think about this for a minute. Think of the magical power he has endowed upon government. Like, uh, for instance, when the very first, uh, uh, very first person figured out that if you took a rock of one type of material and a rock of a different type of material, and if you uh, used friction in a certain way, you could flake off little chips of one rock using a different rock. And those little chips were razor sharp. Now, that's technology. And that happened, I guarantee you, 100% without government. That happened, that leap from having nothing but a rock to having, to having a razor sharp blade, that leap of technology was massive, was unimaginable. And then when somebody figured out that you could take that sharp little chip of a rock and you could resharpen it if you needed to using the same method. As a matter of fact, you didn't even need a rock. You could use an antler. You could carry an antler with you and modify these little blades as you needed. And then somebody figured out the lever. Somebody figured out that if you just attach a stick to the end of that blade, then you have an entirely new tool. Now, all these things took place without government. And it continued down this path all the way to the point of where human beings had things like farming implements, plows. We figured out how to dig wells. We figured out how to build permanent dwellings. We had all these things. Archaeology shows us without question that we had all these things before the first indication of an aggressive government that took place. The first, and I've talked about this plenty of times before, the first aggressive government that we know of took place in um, uh, in Jericho um, in the uh, Jordan River Valley. 
So it looks like from the time frame that I'm burning up here in our in our minutes that I'm not going to uh, not going to be able to go through this whole thing word for word in this whole TED uh, speech. So I'm going to break off here for a quick commercial, and when I get back, uh, we'll we'll go through this guy a little bit faster. This for the rest of it. According to a recent survey of Bitcoin users, the most common use of Bitcoins was as donations. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Murphy with Free8, the world's first Bitcoin-based charity. Join me as I moderate a panel discussion about Bitcoin and nonprofit organizations at the Bitcoin 2013 conference. On the panel will be Angela Keaton from Antiwar.com, Carla Garrick from the Free State Project, and Teresa Warmke, my partner at Free8. Bitcoin Not Bombs is launching us into financial freedom this May at the Bitcoin 2013 conference. To learn more, visit BitcoinNotBombs.com. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. And let's get back with, uh, with Charlie Wheelan here. None of those brilliant ideas, the ones that made people rich, the ones that changed our lives, the ones that made it easier for you to rent movies without having to schlep to Blockbuster, they don't happen in the absence of government because nobody protects the investment that those folks made in their proprietary technology. It's That's true of fallacy. pharmaceuticals. It's true of inventions. It's true of the things that happen at Thales. He's assuming a false premise again. He's assuming the false premise that only government can protect intellectual property. And he's putting aside any kind of, uh, um, you know, any of the other mechanisms that are available in the market without aggression, because that's what we're talking about here, government aggression. We're talking about government guns, government force, government aggression. If you're going to drop a billion dollars in finding a cure to cancer, and that is, by the way, the cost these days of bringing a new drug to market from the time you find the cure test it, take it through clinical trials, and then bring it to market. And what you've discovered actually only costs a dollar a pill, which is not unusual at all. Then what's to stop me in the absence of some patent protection from taking your billion-dollar investment and selling the pills on my own? The answer is nothing. And the answer to that is uh, aspirin. Aspirin. You know, Bayer Aspirin is the uh, uh, largest producer of aspirin in the world, and when you go to the grocery store, the odds are if you're going to buy aspirin, you're going to buy it from Bayer. And yet there's nothing that protects aspirin on the marketplace because all of the, uh, all of the um, uh, IP has expired on it. And back when aspirin was first uh, you know, uh, discovered, or not discovered but it's because it's very, very old, but um, when uh, major manufacturers began making it back in the late 1800s, Bayer – uh, gained a reputation, and by that reputation, people prefer uh, that product. And and this is and see so this is what I'm talking about with economics. If he had the slightest clue of economics, he would know these things. Uh, technology developed. This is like the fallacy that well, it's not a fallacy; it's just a blatant lie that um, uh, that Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, and in fact, he did not. He uh, he actually stole the idea of one component of a cotton gin, and then he used uh, uh, copyright, I'm sorry, uh, patent laws to uh, to tie up the market so that nobody else could produce cotton gins. But there were already um, uh, lots and lots of cotton gins being produced, and uh, and he actually fouled up the market in doing that, not helped it. Okay, let's get back to Charlie's nonsense here. And if there's nothing protecting me in the absence of patent protection, nobody spends that billion dollars in the first place, and you don't get the drug. So if, uh, if we don't have government, you're going to die of cancer. That's what he's telling you. Despite, you know, this is despite the fact that um, tons and tons and tons of money 
has been given to fight cancer voluntarily by human beings and not, not, not stolen through government. Individuals donating to cancer research. Now, unfortunately, a good portion of cancer research donations goes where? Right back to government because a lot of these cancer uh, charities spend more of their money going and lobbying government than they do actually researching on a cure for cancer. So, so this is – it's just factually incorrect what he's saying. I'm not saying he's a liar. I'm saying he is ignorant and he is convinced of something that just isn't true. Let's go back with him. The second reason you should think about it, and this is unique to the timing, actually. It makes the point very well. I said this was December of 2000. Well, we now know what was going on in December of 2000, which is there was a small but dedicated group of people who were working on 2001. He's talking My about second response here. to this fellow is somebody needs to protect us from folks who will do us egregious harm. And it is not going to be the... At this point in the video, he's got images of the, the two lights beaming up in the air from ground zero where the buildings used to stand in, at, uh, uh, at the World Trade Center. So he's appealing to emotions here. And the other thing is, it's really interesting. He's saying that we have to have government to protect us from the evil terrorists. The evil terrorists are going to come and get you without government. They're going to kill you. They're going to blow up your cities, right? Why? Why... Why did 9-11 happen? Why did the, why did the, the, what did the actual planners of this say? Why did they do it? Well, this is no big secret, and it's not the lie that George Bush told you. It's not because they want us for our freedom. That's ridiculous. They attacked us, and they said this over and over and over. They've made this abundantly clear. The reason the, the, the terrorists attacked on 9-11, assuming you believe the government's story on it to begin with, the reason they attacked on 9-11 was because the U.S. government has been fouling up their, their governments, messing with their governments, propping up dictators, propping up kings, puppet kings, all over the Middle East, destroying cultures. The U.S. government has been doing that both independently and through the use of puppet governments in the Middle East. So now, Charlie, Chucky... Are we really that dumb that we think that if you could magically take away government, there would still be terrorists in the Middle East angry at our government and want to attack us? How does that make any sense whatsoever? Government was the agitator. Whether you're talking about governments in the Middle East or you're talking about government here in Washington, D.C. I'm not in Washington, D.C., but I mean in the United States. And the government in Washington, D.C. is the primary agitator of terrorism around the world and has been for 100 years. Okay, so let's get back to his uh, nonsense here. Yeah, so, so he's appealing to fear here. He's, he's making up history that didn't exist. And he's assuming, he's affirming the consequent, uh, if, a, um, if A, then B. Therefore, A. Okay, so if, um, if we don't have government, terrorists would attack us. Therefore, we have to have government. And, and, but he's not out analyzing any aspect of that and coming up with any kind of reason to believe that. Okay, let's get back to him. Private sector, and it's not going to be the nonprofit sector. And the reason has to do with the specific characteristics of the kinds of things that can protect us from a threat like this or any threat on a large group of us, whether it's a missile strike or a dirty nuclear bomb, or water in the drinking water, or some... All right, now, wait a minute. He just got through saying a minute ago that there would be no technology without government. 
And now he wants us to believe that we need government to protect us from missile strikes and nuclear bombs. Missile strikes and nuclear bombs. We need a government to protect us from the inventions that government has dumped massive amounts of tax money into to create. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. He's saying uh, you need to have the mafia protect you in case the mafia comes and tries to hurt you. This is just, well, kind of poison let's keep the drinking going. water of New York City. Oh, we're not fear-mongering there, are we? Poison the drinking water of New York City. The evil terrorists are going to come and poison the water in New York City if you, uh, if you get rid of a government. Without the government to protect you, there'd be terrorists poisoning the water in New York City. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Charlie. You said without, new, without uh, government, there'd be no technology. How would we have a New York City without government? According to your own argument, there would be no New York City. We'd all be sitting in mud puddles eating worms. The best way to understand why only government can protect us from that kind of threat is to think, what if we were to turn it over to a private firm? Clearly, it's very important. A lot of us value the fact that we're protected from these dangers. Certainly, somebody could make money doing it. Well, the nature of defense is that if you protect one person, suppose you were protecting the upper valley from... Okay, he's about to go into the free rider uh, argument. But before he does that, just keep in mind... Um, what what if we had private firms protecting us? Well, the odds are private firms wouldn't go to Afghanistan and deal heroin like the CIA does. Private firms wouldn't go into Afghanistan and teach radicalized versions of uh, uh, of religion the way the CIA did. And that's not wild ranting paranoid stuff. That this is well documented. Uh, well documented that the actual material that was being distributed in Afghanistan and in Pakistan was printed in the United States, the actual radicalizing material that the, that the most radical of the uh, uh, fundamentalist uh, uh, Muslims were, were pushing in Afghanistan and in Pakistan were printed in the United States and distributed by the CIA. That is a known fact. So, so yeah, uh, private firms would not be in uh, Saudi Arabia manipulating the government. They wouldn't be in the pocket of Saudi Arabia. They wouldn't be uh, aligned with, with the government of Israel. They wouldn't be playing games in North Africa with half a dozen other governments. They wouldn't be doing these things. Private, private companies, a uh, private defense firm, wouldn't have any business in doing that because it's their business to protect whoever their customers are. And it's not their business to go over and mess with another country. But again, we're, we're, it, Charlie is making this weird assumption that you have somehow thrown a Rothbardian switch and the United States government has vanished and all city governments have vanished and, uh, and yet there are all these threats overseas. Well, why would there be threats overseas if, if there was no agitator in Washington, D.C. to create it. And in addition to that, even, even if this took place, if the, if the United States government were to, to vanish tomorrow, and like I said, some Rothbardian switch, well, then um, would we have a problem of other governments of the world trying to take over? Absolutely, we would. The U.N. would probably march in here immediately. Canadian troops would probably probably be utilized um, you know, European troops would be utilized because there's a power vacuum and, and there's a demand in the market for a government. And I've talked about this before. The reason we have government now is because people want a government. So you can't just take the government of the U.S. out of the equation and then try to imagine what the world would be like. As long as human beings want government, 
we're going to have government. We have to deal with that desire, that market desire for government. That's where our enemy lies. But see, he doesn't uh, – okay, let's go back. I'm going to run out of time just on this point. Some kind of strike from Aetna. You know, Hanover's very worried about Norwich coming across the river. And you, you know, the firm sets it up, and you protect one person in Hanover. By virtue of protecting one person, you've protected just about everybody around. Okay, and this is the free rider argument, and this is used quite often, and it's been entirely debunked, and I could probably, one of these days I'll have to just do a, a, a podcast on the free rider argument, but um, let's see, what would be the best way to, uh, to approach the free rider argument? Well, other than to say that it's not a problem, uh, there's a, uh, a private police force in Detroit that's been working for years. And if I can remember, I'll put a link in today's show notes to uh, to a story about it that Copblock did. And um, this private uh, private security force is stepped into the gap where uh, the city police have fallen down, and they primarily offer their services to wealthier neighborhoods, wealthier people, and businesses. But in the process of doing that. Um, they they also end up providing security for people who can't afford it. And in the words of the guy who runs the program, he, he says, that's okay. We're making enough money from the businesses and from rich people who have us uh, secure their neighborhoods that we can afford to help the poor. And this is one of the problems with the free rider argument is that, uh, yes, some people will be free riders in, in a, in a uh, libertarian paradise, in a lib pair, there would be free riders, but that's okay. We can afford them. You think about it, and uh, about it, at least 50% of everybody's income in the United States is being taken by government. And some will argue as high as 70% of your income in one form or another is taken. And even if you're low income and you think, well, I don't actually pay any income taxes, you pay layers and layers and layers of taxes on everything you buy. If you bought, you know, if you bought a, a hamburger from McDonald's, the farmer got pay, uh, got hit with taxes. The trucking company got hit with taxes. The 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 medicine company that the farmer pumped antibiotics into his beef, all these layers and layers and layers of companies all got taxed before you ever got to buy that that hamburger for two bucks or whatever. So, you know, maybe as much as 70% of wealth is consumed by government. So if all that's taken out of the equation and you can have security for a fraction of what government costs, because remember, government, everything government gives you, it gives you with layers and layers and layers of waste and bureaucracy. So uh, every, in every circumstance, a private business does things more efficiently than the government. So if you eliminate all that waste and all that wealth stays in the hands of, of individuals and doesn't go get eat up by government, then all of a sudden does it really matter if somebody gets a free ride? If, if someone of a lower income uh, gets a free ride in, in the system, gets protected uh, as a secondary uh, aspect of the larger thing – it doesn't matter. Who cares? We're safe. That's all that really matters. So that so the free argue, the free rider argument uh, falls apart. But I wasn't going to go into that. But okay, let's get going. Otherwise, I'm not going to finish this. Him or her, which means if this is your business model, once you've got one customer, and I live near that one customer, I'm not going to sign up because I'm going to be protected anyway. So what kind of business model works when once you've got one customer, you will never ever get a second? None. 
once again, he's begging the question here, with even with his free rider argument. Okay, so he's assuming that his security agency is protecting him from some foreign uh, aggressor. And we've already dealt with that. There's not going to be a foreign aggressor because the United States is the primary foreign aggressor. The United States government I'm talking about is the primary aggressor in the world and has virtually created all the terrorism that we deal with. So people in Afghanistan wouldn't have any reason to come all the way over here and hassle us. Anyway, um, so so then what are we really looking at with private security? Well, we're looking at it on a neighborhood level. We're looking at uh, individuals uh, hiring uh, a, a very much like an insurance company, a private insurance company, uh, except it would also provide uh, security. And you would probably get a discount on your homeowner's insurance if you had a certain type of security insurance. And all these things have been worked out. I mean, you know, Rothbard wrote about this years and years ago. Stefan Molyneux has covered it. And, and clearly this guy either has intentionally ignored all of that or is just completely ignorant of the, of the actual argument. So let's let him go on here. So if you have one person in New York City who signs up to be protected from terrorism, there's not a second. That's not a recipe for making money. You have one person who says, yes, find Osama bin Laden, hunt him down, make us all better, you don't get a second. So let's think about the nonprofit sector. Suppose we all offer up some money to pay for something like hunting terrorists or protecting ourselves from a nuclear bomb. What if you don't contribute to the effort? then you're essentially a free rider. We can't then say, boy, all right, we, we are hunting down Osama bin Laden, and he contributed to that effort, but he didn't, so make sure that he gets hit. Uh, they did, but the people behind them didn't. And that's clearly a straw man argument, but it's also based on the earlier fallacies. I mean, why would Osama bin Laden want us if it weren't for all the agitation that the, that the U.S. government had, uh, had involved? So that's, that's covered. So here's a list of people who should be vulnerable to terrorist attack, and here are people who shouldn't. Right? That doesn't work very well either. So the private sector isn't going to do something that we know is very worthwhile. The nonprofit sector isn't going to do something that we know is very, very worthwhile. Only one entity is left, which is government, which has the power to compel us each to contribute to something that we know is a worthwhile co collective endeavor, but will not otherwise happen. So suppose my friend from 2000 is still not persuaded. Then I might have to resort to some different unorthodox means which is I would move in next to his house. And of course, remember, his house is a very loose use of the term because he hasn't really recognized property rights. So Whoa. Whoa. Back up the bus, fantasy man Charlie. He doesn't recognize property rights because he, doesn't, because he says the government is, has been rendered uh, obsolete. That is a massive leap there. That is a huge straw man. Uh, boy, read Hans Hermann Hoppe, okay? Government does not protect property rights. If, As a matter of fact, government cannot exist in the same place in the same time as property rights. The very fact that there's government means you don't have property rights. Think about it. Government can come into your house anytime they want, period. Oh, yeah. Oh, we have the Constitution. Yeah, that meant a lot in Boston not long ago, didn't it? The government can come into your house anytime they want. You don't believe it? Ask the dead Marine in Arizona, or was it New Mexico? They can come in anytime they want, and if you resist, they will kill you. That's how it works. You cannot, you cannot resist government. When they decide they want your property, they take it. 
either through eminent domain or you're just driving down the street. They pull you over. They decide they want your car. They get out a drug-sniffing dog. He, uh, magically, the drug-sniffing dog uh, responds to your front bumper. And so they rip your car apart looking for something in it, and somehow something appears in there, and they take your car. Or maybe you've got $500 in cash on you, and they just decide that that's more money than a person should walk around with. Clearly, you're a drug dealer, and they take your car. That's how it works in the United States. That's the way the law is. It happens all the time. You don't have property rights where there's a government. And for him to assume that there's that that if government goes away, you won't have any property rights. That's just it's made up out of whole cloth right there. He just he just made that argument up all on his own. I mean, you know, this is my house too. And I'm gonna raise a very large circus elephant in my backyard. And his backyard too, because remember there's no property line. Municipal governments do that. Whoa. So before there was municipal governments, there was no property? This is a historical fantasy that this guy just created out of nowhere. All right, let's break for a commercial here before we get into the next phase where he starts talking about uh, elephant poop. Folks, I'd like to talk to you about survival gear bags. Survival gear bags is about more than just a great place to get gear bags and survival kits. Check out their website by clicking on the banner at badquaker.com. Survival Gear Bags has everything from wise food storage products to tactical equipment to camping supplies to clothing and rain gear to hydration and purification supplies. Plus, Survival Gear Bags is known for its service and it's owned and operated by people who understand and adhere to the zero aggression principle. So click on the ad for Survival Gear Bags on the Bad Quaker website and get the stuff you need. Thanks, folks. Okay, and now we're going to have uh, Charlie Whelan talking to us about elephant poop. This will be fun. Listen to this. So my elephant is wandering around his house periodically, and the reason this might bring home the importance of government to him is I found this online. This is why the Internet is so wonderful. Elephants crap an average of one to 200 pounds a day. And remember, my elephant is wandering around his house because there is no boundary, and I would say after about seven to ten days, so we're talking 1,400 to 2,000 pounds of crap around his house, he's going to say, I got a problem here. Yeah, because, uh, you know, first off, what's wrong here? Well, how is he going to, how's Charlie going to own an elephant if there's no property? He's already said there's no property. You, you can't have property without civil government, right? Okay, so so you don't have – he can't have an elephant. He can't have property. And assuming he did bring an elephant, somehow he got an elephant and brought it here. Of course, these people believe that there's no money without government too. So I don't know how he would have bought an elephant according to his, uh, you know, his imagined world where there's no property. There's no government, so there's no property. There's no money. There's no – you can't do anything. There's no technology. How would you build the house? How did you build the house without government showing you how and, and creating the technology? Technology for you, but let's just assume that that we have a Murray Rothbard f- f- uh, switch that gets flipped, and all the current technology exists, and so he he is able to buy uh, an elephant and buy a house or build a house or whatever, and he comes and he starts hassling this guy by having his elephant poop all over the place. Uh, why didn't the guy just shoot the elephant? Who's going to arrest him for it? You see, I mean, the whole art—it's—it's it's horribly, horribly—it's worse than a straw man. But let's get let's get going with it here. We'll watch how silly this is. And I'm going to say, what are you talking about? This is the market at work. This is beautiful. I bought- oh wait, that's the market. That's the market. 
Okay, sorry about that. I'll let him run. Bought the elephant. I thought I got a very good deal. I've hired a trainer. He's doing a top-notch job. Trainer's happy. I'm happy. The elephant salesman's happy. What's the problem? This is, you know, the market works on voluntary transactions that leave all parties better off. And he says, I'm not very happy at all because there's 2,000 pounds of crap in my backyard. <laughs> and I'm going to say, yes, this is why we need government. Now, here's an interesting thought for you. Uh, elephant poop is uh, relatively fertile. And if there was no government, there would be no regulation on elephant poop or any other substance that you uh, would have uh, contact with. And so there might be a really valuable market for elephant poop. You don't know. You don't know what things would be like without the aggression of government there. So elephant poop might be vastly valuable. Maybe there's a farmer down the road that would be willing to pay big money for that for elephant poop for his farm. Now, that being the case, who would own the poop? Because in Charlie's world here, there's no property. So, you know, it's a false premise to begin with. But as you try to look at it, it the whole thing just falls apart. It's goofy. Because there are a whole host of transactions that make the parties very happy, and they impose serious harm on third parties who had nothing to do with that transaction. Most of them are a lot more serious than my circus elephant, although this does explain why we have zoning laws, and you probably can't raise an elephant in downtown Hanover. But if you think about most of our environmental problems, they are a function of externalities. You do something, whether it's driving, and you take into account your private costs and your private benefits, and you do it or don't do it, you do not take into account the social costs you impose on others, like my elephant wandering around this guy's house. So you don't think about the pollution that your car generates. If you're running a factory and dumping lead into the river, you don't think about the people downstream who may be poisoned or lose their fishing abilities or anything like that. As a result, we do a whole host of things in the absence of some kind of regulation that actually end up making us worse off collectively as a result. In the absence of regulation, we do these things that he's describing. Uh, companies dumping lead into water and, and pollution and all that. In the absence of regulation, these things take place. Well, the funny thing is, here's a little story for you. Uh, under government oversight, General Electric legally dumped over 500 tons of PCBs into the Hudson River. And now you and I are paying for the cleanup of that through our taxes. That's with government oversight, with government regulation. GE legally dumped over 500 tons of PCBs into the Hudson River. Um, the city of Niagara Falls... And then later, the U.S. Army used a, a place called the Love Canal. It was a half-built canal that, uh, that kind of was a venture that sort of fell through. And the city got a hold of it and started using it as a, as a hazardous waste dump. And then the Army stepped in and started using it as a hazardous waste dump. Actually, some of the waste, uh, the nuclear material from the Manhattan Project, was dumped in the Love Canal. Now, later, the city sold the property to a hooker chemical company, and they used the property as a waste dump for their hazardous material. Then, later, the city decided it wanted it back. So uh, it was actually the um, uh, school district 
that attempted to buy the property from uh, Hooker Chemical Company. And Hooker Chemical Company objected. They said, no, we can't sell this to you. It's a, it's a chemical dump. It's polluted land. And, um, and the, the, the school district used the muscle of the city to threaten Hooker Chemical Company that they were going to just take the land with eminent domain if Hooker Chemical didn't sell them the land. So Hooker Chemical sold them the land, but they put legal restrictions on it. But then the city uh, reversed those legal, those uh, restrictions, and um, and they actually went in and made the situation worth, worse by cutting through some of the, uh, the barriers that Hooker Chemical had put into the ground, layers of clay and things like this. And so they they exposed uh, a lot of this hazardous waste as they went ahead and built two schools and then sold the rest of the property uh, for a, a low-cost housing uh, program where, where houses were sold to uh, low-income people. And so then for 30 years, for 30 years, the government uh, wouldn't admit to what they had done. It took 30 years. It took people dying horribly. It took lingering disease and birth defects, deaths. Um, and, then, and then in the late 70s, the government finally admitted what they had done. And by that time, Jimmy Carter was president, and he steps in, and, and with a massive amount of tax money, they go in and start this huge cleanup effort, all with your tax money. And they're still cleaning it up. And they're still paying off people who are still lingering illnesses. They're still plaguing them from this. And this happened with, with government oversight and with regulation. This could not have happened at all had there not been government there to provide these opportunities for companies to do this. And the actual acts of city government that did this and the army that did this. It couldn't have happened because as, uh, you know, uh, Murray Rothbard and, and Walter Block and others have shown about how uh, private property protects against pollution. Because if you own property, you're not going to pollute it. Uh, you, you have an interest in, in maintaining it. But if you can just sell it off to some, to some city or, or pass off the cost of the cleanup, then, uh, then you've eliminated this, uh, uh, this motive to keep your property clean. People take care of what they own. But um, the, tragedy, uh, the tragedy of the commons shows us that people don't take care of, of property that's not specifically owned by one person, by one entity. Okay, so now the next thing you're going to hear is he's going to talk about the Cuyahoga River in Ohio catching on fire in 1969. And he's going to use that as an example uh, uh, the same way of why pollution is bad and government is the solution. The problem is the Cuyahoga River has caught fire over and over and over and over. The first time it caught fire was in 1868. Now, my dad actually was living in that area in 1952 when one of the worst fires uh, happened on the Cuyahoga River. The, the river caught on fire. It burned a bunch of docks. It burned some buildings. It was pretty horrible. There was There was literally fire coming up through the sewers up into the city and blowing manhole covers off of the sewers in the streets. It was pretty bad. Um, but then in 1969, politicians used it as, a, as leverage, and, and you'll hear his side of the argument. But keep in mind, the companies that were polluting the Cuyahoga River were doing it legally for 100 years, right there with government looking for 100 years. All right, let's hear him. One serious example would be water pollution. Until the Clean Water Act, an act of government, we weren't terribly serious about protecting our rivers and streams and everything else. 
When did it become obvious that we needed to get a little more serious about this? Does anyone know what motivated the Clean Water Act? It was when the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught on fire. For real, right? It's when a river catches on fire, it's a signal that maybe you're abusing a resource that could be used better. Why does a river catch on fire? Because you've got all kinds of industrial users who are essentially acting like me, the elephant owner. They're not taking into account the damage done to this collective resource. And until you step in, you being some kind of collective entity in the form of government, you're going to have rivers catching on fire. You're going to have circus elephants wandering around your house, crapping pretty much everywhere. All right, here's a totally different example. So how many, how many of you own a car or have driven a car? How many of you have been to a gas station in the last month? How many of you wondered why you were pumping gas? Am I actually getting a gallon of gasoline every time that thing says I'm getting a gallon? All right. How many of you actually have done anything about it? How many of you are deeply concerned rather than just wondering because you definitely have like three or four minutes on your hand? Right? It's not really a serious concern. And the reason it's not really a serious concern is because we collectively pay somebody to make sure that you're getting a gallon of gasoline when you pump in your car. Okay, now, so here he shows his unbelievable ignorance of history. Um, he assumes that there would be no measuring standards uh, if government didn't exist. Now, the problem with that is that uh, back um, before they started sending the little county guy around to measure uh, gas pumps, before, before that jobs program uh, was invented by government, uh, gas pumps were really interesting to look at. If, if you're a collector of old gas pumps, you know what I'm talking about. They, uh, they had glass chambers, and you would first fill up the glass chamber with the amount of gallons that you were going to purchase. And you could look right at it and see that it was an accurate amount, and then they would fill it up into your car. That's how it worked. Uh, prior to government's interference in this process, the market had already fixed the problem that he imagines can't be fixed by anybody but government. Uh, that problem was already fixed by the market. And uh, for things like measuring, uh, like, uh, measuring standards and things like this, these things are not set by government. These things were established by industry. Uh, for example, the time zones. The time zones were not established by government. Time zones were established by mutual cooperation between independent private railroad companies – when they, were, when they figured out that they needed to all have the same time within the same geographical area so that they wouldn't ram trains into each other, so that they would know when the tracks were clear by being able to agree on certain time uh, uh, sequences. So, so even time zones, the standards of that, uh, were created in the private market. And so it was with, with all the measuring standards. Uh, the... Uh, the um, the adoption or the attempted adoption of metrics in the United States is a good example. Uh, there was already a standard, and that standard had been developed by, by independent uh, uh, companies agreeing on what the standard would be, the American standard. And then it was adopted by government. And then government decided to change and try to force metrics on the people of the United States. And, and people just said, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to stick with this other that we're used to. So his argument is based on, a, on an ignorance of history. Uh, it's, a, it's based on an ignorance of market-driven forces, and it assumes that uh, government stops fraud, and without government, uh, fraud would just be rampant. That's what he's saying here. You go to buy gas at the gas station, and they just rip you off right and left. Well, 
um, that's not how business works. People don't stay in business behaving like that. Let's hear a little bit more about uh, about this. He's going to ramble on some more. Let me advance a little, see if I can get to uh, where he really gets into this. In the developing world, a shocking and sad amount of your time will actually be spent verifying those kinds of things. Somebody will put stones in your bag of rice. Somebody will give you counterfeit currency. And as a result, it is much, much harder to do business in those kinds of places. Have you ever been to a, uh, have you ever been to a farmer's market? Uh, have you ever been to a flea market? Have you ever been to a garage sale? Did you face this kind of fraud? Anybody who, uh, who is in business, anybody who has actually worked for a living outside of the structure of the college and university structure, anybody who's not involved in government, anybody who's ever tried to run a business knows that reputation is 100%. That is the most important thing. And if there's somebody who's putting rocks in their bag of rice when they're selling it to you, they're not going to do it more than once. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm not sure what kind of repercussions would happen if somebody tried to sell me a bag of rice that was actually full of rocks, but I can guarantee it wouldn't be pleasant to the rock seller. Now, this again, this assumes, uh, well, think about this. Um, when you buy something from Amazon, there's a whole series of, uh, of ways that if you got ripped off, you can complain about it, and Amazon will make that th happen. They will, they will fix whatever is wrong, and they will make it happen to your satisfaction. They're very aggressive about that, and government is not the reason why. The same way with eBay. There are layers and layers of reasons that you, that you don't want to rip people off on eBay. And there are people who will rip you off on eBay, but there are people who will rip you off in every uh, level of market, whether it's regulated by government or not. But think about things like um, – the Better Business Bureau, uh, Consumers Union, under, Underwriters Laboratories. Underwriters Laboratory um, basically set the standard for all electrical devices in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was not government that made sure that everything was run on 110 volt and that the right amperage was there. That wasn't government that did that. That was all private industry. And this guy teaches economics and he doesn't know this stuff? This is pathetic. It really is. Um, let me advance here a little bit since I'm about to run out of time. Industry. So to the extent that technology and knowledge are more important than they were 100 years ago or 50 years ago, then government protecting intellectual property is more important than it ever was. National defense. It is true that we were attacked in 1941. There have been wars and th external threats for as long as people have been able to come up with weapons. It is also true that it is much easier now to attack anywhere on a larger scale with and less we notice. Need government there to could protect be a dirty bomb government. in Atlanta or fear, Chicago fear or Moscow tomorrow morning. We would not see troops massing. We, would, we will always be cut off guard as we were with 9-11. So to the extent that the capacity to destroy people is bigger than it ever was, a lot, a lot of it driven by nuclear technology, then the importance for an effective national defense is more important. Okay, I'm going to have to wrap it up with that. He does some recapping here, but basically just repeats the same fallacies over and over. If you, if you think about this just on the surface, 
We need government to protect us because there's government out there doing bad things. We need government to protect us because governments of the world have developed nuclear capabilities and they might hurt us. We need government to protect us because there are missiles out there that are owned by other governments and they might attack us. You see the circular reasoning that he, that he employs here? At one point, he goes into climate change. Um, he ignores that government pollutes far more than the private sector. He ignores that entirely. He ignores the fact that the whole uh, climate change argument is unclear at best and is very likely a giant red herring. He ignores all that and just assumes that without government, you know, we would just burn this planet up. That's what we would do. He goes back again around uh, – well, essentially, he just keeps re- repeating these same fallacies and um, – uh, appeals to emotion, fear-mongering, um, assumptions that uh, that everything that he's already said is correct, like the nonsense about there, without the government there would be no technology. Um, I wonder who he thinks in the government invented all that technology. So anyway, uh, to recap all this, again, I want to emphasize – that it's not that individuals, whether we're talking about a guy like this, like uh, uh, Charles Whelan, or whether we're talking about a guy like him who is basically a leech on society, uh, you know, he makes his living essentially off of the university system, which exists because of the government. Um, whether we're talking about people like him or whether we're talking about the Obamas or the Nancy Pelosi's or the John McCain's or the, you know, uh, the uh, the Bill Clinton's or the... George Bush's, these people are not our enemy. They actually believe the things that they're pushing. Obama, I think Obama actually believes that he's trying to do good in all the things that he does. But the problem, again, is not the government. The problem is not even the people in government. The problem is the myth, the religion that this stuff is all legitimate, the religion that it's okay for some people to – have to be able to create laws and then enforce those laws on everybody else at the point of a gun. That religion, that is our enemy. And uh, um, pretty soon I'm going to get another a series going on, uh, you know, I, I talked, I think, last week about practical things that can be done uh, beyond, above and beyond just education, but practical things that can be done to move us towards a better world and to prepare us for a time when there will be no state, when there will be no governments based on aggression, where the, where the myth of the state will evaporate. And, uh, and I'm I'll give you a quick little teaser. I've got, uh, I'm lining up a, uh, a guest that is going to talk specifically about some of the uh, some of the things that I talked about on a previous uh, episode about the, uh, the practical approaches to this, things like mesh networks and things like that. Okay, so uh, folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to check on badquaker.com, uh, where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.